stand me up at the gates of hell, but I won't back down. Gonna stand my ground, won't be turned around. In a world that keeps on dragging me down, gonna stand my ground. Welcome to I Protest. This is Donald Jeffries coming to you from just outside the Swamp Infested Washington, D.C. As I do every Friday this time, we're going old school with my old theme song, I Won't Back Down, from uh, TFR. Very special guest, the first hour today. Uh, Joel Gilbert's a filmmaker. He's probably known to most of you. He's been on lots of big outlets like uh, Alex Jones. That's where I first saw him. Uh, he's, he's made so many great movies. I, I'm looking over here. He, he dreams from my real father about Obama. He made a Bob Dylan Revealed. Made a film about Danny Williams, Bill Clinton's uh, <laughs> probable son, the Trayvon hoax. And uh, his new film is Michelle Obama 2024, her real life story and plan. So we're going to probably be talking mostly about that. So, uh, Joel, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. OK, great to be here. Thanks so much. So let's I guess let, let's, uh, you know, talk about that. At first, how did you you, you obviously have a big interest in the Obamas since you had the uh, the film about uh, Barack, and now you turn your eyes to uh, Michelle. I, I agree with you. I think she's probably, I think the nomination is hers if she decides to run. I think they would love to have her. So uh, you really think that's going to happen? Yeah, I've been following the Obamas for years. As you mentioned, I'm pretty well known for that uh, 2012 film, Dreams from My Real Father, about Obama's background. I think I made the case that uh, the man who raised him in Hawaii, Frank Marshall Davis, who was a Soviet agent and Communist Party member out of Chicago uh, and radicalized Obama by his own admission that that actually was his biological father. Uh, and in doing so, of course, I followed Michelle Obama as well over the years. And I noticed about four or five years ago that I, I saw that Michelle was pretty much following the same formula that Barack had done to become president. Uh, Barack had a voter registration organization in Chicago called Project Vote, uh, that he had started and used it to register minorities to vote. Sure enough, Michelle started something called When We All Vote, a big organization backed by George Soros, $26 million in funding. And she's been running around the country registering people to vote. Uh, Barack based his candidacy on his personal story, his book, Dreams from My Father. And sure enough, Michelle wrote two autobiographies, one called Becoming and the new one out called The Light We Carry, and, you know, it just it's really a political document. It tries to rewrite history. And that's very typical of a politician who's wanting to run for office. And lastly, of course, Barack was the keynote speaker at the Democrat convention in 2004 to uh, introduce John Kerry. The keynote speaker slot is the one they give to the person they think will be the nominee at the next convention. And they let him in introduce the candidate. Sure enough, Michelle was the keynote speaker for Joe Biden in 2020. She introduced Joe Biden at the 2020 Democrat convention. So I noticed that she was just following the same footsteps as Barack and just being very high profile with these book tours. Uh, her latest book tours on Netflix with Oprah, a big special, just like her Becoming book became a movie on Netflix. Uh, she was just on stage with Bruce Springsteen in Barcelona singing backups. <laughs> <laughs> she just started a company for healthy drinking for kids. 
So she's keeping a very high profile and doing all the right moves politically to um, build her audience, especially with women and minorities, these core key Democrat Party constituent groups. Uh, and I'm just convinced that she's doing all of this for one reason, and that is to become a candidate for president uh, when Joe Biden drops out. So because many people are speculating, obviously, it, do, it doesn't seem like the Democrats want Biden anymore. He's barely he's barely animated at this point. They really can't keep him up and about there. It doesn't seem very, uh, to any significant degree. So. You think he'll just uh, he'll drop out? Kamala Harris, obviously, it seems like they don't want her. She's more of an embarrassment. What about you know the candidate I love, Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? I'm, I'm sure he probably has very little chance, but he is polling higher than we expected so far. I mean, what 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 do you see happening there? Yeah, I think uh, RFK Jr. is simply picking up some of the anti-Biden sentiment that is prevalent in the Democrat Party. They simply don't want him. Uh, RFK Jr. is kind of a fringe candidate. He's more of a libertarian. He's certainly not a progressive Democrat. And he's somebody that uh, uh, progressives and the media really don't like. So, But the, he did have the Kennedy name. I think that Joe Biden and his handler's plan was for Biden to do nothing, not to announce for president and just kick it off to the fall. And because RFK entered the race within one week, you saw that Susan Rice, who was on Team Obama, she resigned. And Biden released a three-minute video announcement that he's running for president. That's not a presidential announcement. A presidential announcement is when you, you know, go to big crowds and you run all over the country giving your, your uh, you know, agenda for the next term. Releasing a three-minute video, I think, was just a reaction to RFK Jr. They wanted to let people know, well, don't support this guy. I'm running and that way it freezes the field so no one else enters the race. So that's what that three-minute video was about. I expect that Biden in the fall sometime, he'll announce he's not running for any number of reasons. It could be that Hunter Biden is indicted and he pardons him. It could be because the House committees have found that he's guilty of bribery. Uh, any number of reasons, his health, he could say he's not running. And at that point, the party has no one else to turn to anyway except for Michelle Obama because it takes a long time to prepare a campaign, but Michelle has universal name recognition. She's the best loved Democrat. She could easily raise $100 million in two weeks. And you can see that the Democrat Party actually has set all this up for Michelle. Uh, they moved the first primary state from Iowa, which it's been for so many years, and the candidate would have to go and campaign in 100 counties in Iowa. They moved it to South Carolina, which has 50% African-American primary voters in the Democrat primary. And South Carolina is a state that Michelle Obama claims as her adopted home state because her grandparents came from South Carolina to Chicago. And Michelle used to go there for family reunions in the summers. And then lastly, the Democrat Party moved their convention to what city of Chicago, where they could anoint Michelle as this hometown girl from the South Side as the nominee. There's no, it makes no sense to hold a Democrat convention in Chicago. Normally you put it in a state that's kind of purple that you want to get some publicity and maybe help turn that state to your party. So that makes no sense either, unless it's all being set up for Michelle Obama. And I'm convinced that they're all coming together for that purpose. So do you think that, I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine they'll just uh, just turn to her without anyone objecting because you have other people. I mean, what about Hillary Clinton? I think she's still 
probably harbors aspirations. What do you think she'll have to say about that? No, I think Hillary Clinton is not a viable candidate. She's a, you know, an old white lady, just like Biden <laughs> yes. is an old white dude. The Democrat yeah. Party has turned away from old white people. They got rid of Andrew Cuomo in New York. Uh, they're into uh, female, ethnic minorities, immigrants, transsexuals, black candidates all across the board. So Michelle ticks all those boxes. She's a female. She's African-American. She can appeal to nostalgia. Remember how much you love the Obama years. And we never had any scandals. And she's positioned herself as someone who's just this beloved first lady who can come in from the outside and bring us all back together. So I think that's the play. And I don't think that Hillary has any sway in the party anymore. Well, as you guys see, I, I'm going to put a couple of these comments up here. You see uh, Felix is saying Big Mike 2024. And then we have Karen saying, I'm expecting that she would run to. I'm sure you're aware of the feeling, especially in the conspiracy world, that uh, the, the nickname Big Mike is out there everywhere. I mean, what what what, what do we make? I mean, I don't know. I've seen some pictures that make you wonder. What, what are your thoughts on that? OK, look, uh, Joan Rivers is a comedian and she made a joke some years yeah. ago that Oh, but we, so the, she was asked a question while she was walking into a building, you know, we're ever going to have a gay president. He, she said, oh, well, we have Obama's a gay president and Michelle's a transgender. So that was obviously a joke. And she said that to be funny. But because she died two months later yeah, of a yeah. minor throat procedure, it started the Internet rumor mill where people make, uh, you know, off color jokes that Michelle is a male. I can assure you, Michelle is not a male. She's not a dude. She's never been a dude. She she is female. She's phony in different ways. Now, and I go into this in my film and book, Michelle Obama 2024. It's both a book, which you can get on Amazon, and it's a film, which you can watch. You can live stream at uh, SalemNow.com. And Michelle's biggest problem is that is not that she's phony because she's a dude. She's not. Her biggest problem is she really is a white girl. And I'll explain that. <laughs> she grew up in fear of the black community. She was afraid of black people. They would beat her up. The kids would beat her up for acting white and talking white. She even talks about in her book getting in a fist fight with a girl who called her an Oreo, meaning you're black on the outside, but you're really white on the inside. Right. Sure. It's a big insult in the black community. So Michelle ran away from the black community for her education. I go into this in the film. She could have gone to an all-black elementary school, but her parents illegally enrolled her in a gifted school. She could have gone to a, a good school, all black high school, a block from her house. She could have walked to school. It was a good school. But she ran away an hour and a half away to go to a magnet school. So she always was afraid of black people. And she went to Princeton. She married a biracial man. And in her career in Chicago, it's very interesting. Her first job was working for the mayor of Chicago under Valerie Jarrett. Michelle was the assistant planning commissioner. And one of her big projects was to knock down the Cabrini Green, which was known as the projects where black people lived. So Michelle destroyed the projects and gave away the land to these Democrat donor developers like Tony Resco, who wanted the land because it was downtown Chicago. So Michelle made like 20,000 black people homeless and told them it's going to be good for you if I knock down your homes. Then having proven how callous she was toward the black community, Michelle was hired by the University of Chicago Medical Center for $300,000 a year to deny health care access to black people. The Southsiders were showing up at the hospital medical center, at the emergency room, 
and a lot of them were uninsured. So they were losing money. And Michelle's job was if they showed up, Michelle would put you in a van and ship you to these crappy clinics on the, on the south side. And Michelle would say, this is good for you. So they couldn't hire a white person to destroy black people's homes and take away their health care. They had to hire a black person to take it away and say it's going to be good for you. So Michelle was always the tool of the white Democrat elites and the liberals to deal with their problems with black people. And she made a lot of money. So Michelle's problem is that she exploited the black community and she was she was afraid of them growing up. And that's why she's trying so hard to pretend that she's one of these ordinary black folks that, uh, you know, suffered from racial discrimination and racial slights. It's total nonsense. I go into her whole life story and history. I went to Chicago. I talked to her high school classmates, elementary school teachers and classmates, her Princeton professor, uh, thesis advisor, her mother. Michelle was a very privileged kid from a high, uh, political family. Her father was a precinct captain. He worked for the Democrat Party machine. Michelle grew up in Jesse Jackson's house. She was best friends with his daughter, Santita. Mm, Michelle went to Paris. Michelle went to Paris when she was in high school with her French club. How many people you know that were <laughs> held back in life got to go to Paris? I didn't go to Paris in high school. Yeah. So yeah. there's a whole reality of Michelle's life as a very privileged kid who was afraid of the black community, who exploited them for her career. And that's the truth of her phoniness, not not that she's a dude. She's not a dude. Well, so what? Uh, so obviously, you you were able to find a lot more about her past because one of the things that I wrote about in my book, Hidden History, uh, trying to find things about Barack Obama's past is very difficult. He's got lots of school records that are still being withheld. Of course, the whole birth certificate thing. Uh, the professor at Harvard that said, "I don't remember him, and I remember every politician that comes through here." People. Uh, so, but you're saying that's not with Michelle. There is a, a much more of a back historical background there because there, there certainly doesn't seem to be with Barack. Well, look, uh, with Barack, I think I was able to crack a lot of what really went on. When you understand that the real father was Frank Marshall Davis, a lot of stuff falls into place. Uh, Barack spent his junior year abroad uh, in Pakistan, and then he came to Columbia University. And the reason Professor Henry Graff, who I interviewed, uh, was the head of the political science department, said he never, he said to me, I never saw Barack Obama and none of the professors I know ever saw him either. How do you graduate from Columbia in political science if you never go to class? And, but the reality is uh, in his senior year at Columbia, Obama took freshman courses to fill out his requirements because he got credit for the political science uh, courses from his junior year abroad and from Occidental. So I think it cracked most of the code of what what Obama's real story is. Uh, Michelle is a little easier, more accessible. She's three years younger than Barack and uh, from Chicago. So there were a lot of people I could still talk to her, her, you know, elementary school teacher, third grade teacher, elementary school principal, classmates, the boy who she first boy she kissed. Uh, you know, I talked to her thesis advisor at Princeton University, very famous uh, Michelle's thesis uh at Princeton, it's very interesting. People mis largely misinterpreted it. Michelle went to Princeton. She got in there with very low test scores, probably because uh, affirmative action was very right. much, you know, in favor in the 80s. And also because her brother was a uh, basketball star there. So her first semester at Princeton, she got very low grades, which just devastated her. She used to get, you know, A's and B's in high school. So she ran away to the sociology department because it's relatively easy. 
And to make it even easier, she went and did African-American studies. Imagine going to Princeton. <laughs> you know, you go, yeah. your, you, your parents pay for you to go to Princeton and you go and you study something that's completely, uh, you know, just some, something you can try to get a good grade in. Right. So anyway, she wrote that thesis that people kind of misinterpreted. In her thesis, she actually wrote, she said, uh, she said, after three years at Princeton, I now have conservative values. I just want to get a good job in a corporation and make money just like my white classmates, you know. So <laughs> she she came to reject all the nonsense she was taught about all this, uh, you know, critical race theory, which kind of started at that time. And she just went off and uh, continued her her pursuit of the American dream. And Michelle Obama really is uh, a successful person who lived the American dream. She's an American success story, but she can't tell you that. She has to say, oh, I was held back in life. Uh, sure. I grew up as a black woman and right. all, these, all these racial things happened to me. One of the big lies she's been telling for 15 years, she claimed that her high school counselor at, at her magnet school racially profiled her about her applying to Princeton University. She said, she said that the counselor said, you're black, maybe you're thinking too big, you shouldn't go to Princeton. Uh, it turns out her counselor was a church-going black woman. So there's no way she racially profiled her. But Michelle has to chronically try to manipulate the black community with these phony stories to try to get their sympathy and votes. I got you. I, just, I, I hate to interrupt. Tony, uh, if you can hear me out there, I don't think that we're live on Rockfin. I mean, we're still live other places, but I don't, I don't see the stream out here and I'm not getting the email notification that it went up. So if you can hear this, if you can make sure that it's out there, because people on Rockfin are probably wondering. I'm, I'm listening, Don. Uh, you went live on Rockfin. Uh, I made sure the tab was uh, applied. Okay, so let, me, let me, let me go back and see. Yeah. Cause I can't, I, I, I'm trying to bring it up, but you know, cause I, I monitor that one too. And I can't, it's not coming up. I know that we did go live. It may have dropped the stream. If that's the case, then we'll have to do a rebroadcast on it. Okay. That's fine. It, it, whatever you can do, if you see it, uh, and if you're listening out there and uh, you wonder what's going on with Rockfin, anyway, but we, we have people over YouTube, so that's fine. And, and elsewhere, but uh, I just thought it meant thanks. Sorry, Jill, but um, I just want to make sure we're not losing half our audience, but um, so uh, well, let's talk a little bit about the film about Barack Obama, because obviously there's this is kind of a a bleed over from that. And that's probably what the film you're, I think, best known for. It's where I first heard you interviewed um, when you discovered the, who you think the Obama's um, real father was. Uh, so talk a little bit about him, because we know that Obama was connected. Uh, you know, I, I talked in my book about a. Uh, um, Bernadette Dorn and the, her, her husband and how they were involved and you know basically when he was a very young man and everything and he had these kind of curious connections so uh, I imagine that resulted from that. Yeah well and by the way uh, I discovered uh, that Michelle Obama was actually best friends with Bernadine Dorn. She worked at Sidley and Austin Law okay. Firm with her for two years and I demonstrated in the film that I believe that Michelle was radicalized by Bernadine Dorn. Bernadine Dorn was the head of the Weather Underground terrorist group and Bernadine Dorn used to talk about in the 60s, she'd talk about the politics of fear and how we're all afraid of each other. And Americans live in different tribes and all the laws come from the police work become because of this fear. So it's amazing. I actually put it in the film version. You can see Michelle and Bernadine side by side. Michelle <laughs> talks just like Bernadine. She talks about fear and we're all afraid of each other. It's the same nonsense. So Michelle and Barack would go to the house of Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers for years in the 90s and have dinner once a week. They were very close to 
a couple of uh, domestic terrorists and radicals. And I think that had great influence on them. Um, and uh, as far as Barack Obama, you know, Michelle is trying to pull off the same phony history. Uh, Barack came onto the scene. He said, my father's from Kenya. My mother's from Can Kansas. I'm going to bring us all back together because of my unique background. He said he was going to obey the Constitution. He said a, mar a marriage is between man and a woman and God. He kind of ran as a mainstream candidate with this very shallow story of his family background uh, and his autobiography, Dreams from My Father. Uh, in fact, it was all uh, BS. You know, Barack was uh, raised in Hawaii by Frank Marshall Davis by his own admission. He was radicalized by him. I became friendly with one of Obama's best friends growing up was Keith Kakagawa. Uh, and he told me all the stories about how Obama would hang out with Frank and Frank would take him to these strip clubs. And, uh, you know, uh, how uh, he even told me the story of how Barack himself it was hidden from him that in high school, Barack uh, realized that Frank was his real father and he demanded that everybody tell him the truth. Uh, so I chronicle this whole story in Dreams from My Real Father about how Obama was raised and radicalized by a Soviet agent and American communist named Frank Marshall Davis, such that Obama was a revolutionary Marxist when he showed up at Occidental College in, in, in Los Angeles when he's 18 years old. Uh, so he hid all this background. Obama later went to Chicago and was a community organizer. He trained with ACORN. He was a far left radical going back to Chicago where his father was from, utilizing all those connections and uh, was able to run as a mainstream candidate because the, the media covered up his, his real background. And as soon as, well, actually five days before Obama was elected, he said, we're five days away from fundamentally transforming the United States of America. And no one really knew what he was talking about. He just kind of slipped up. He got too excited. So as soon as he got elected, Obama threw all the voters under the bus that voted for him and pursued this radical socialist agenda that no one voted for. Yeah, well, he certainly and there, there's so many questions about his uh, his background. Obviously, you you, uh, you did a lot of research into it, but I. I just it, I just find it unbelievable that we're, we're we may be on the verge of another Obama and uh, this will probably be uh, uh, Michelle Obama and I, I know you know you're saying that there that the rumors about her aren't true but there's tons if you can see I'm I'm not, I'm filtering out a lot of comments believe me because there's that's what people want to talk about is Big Mike I mean so I, I know many I know people, I know they like to talk about that look the, the main yep. thing is to understand that, that Michelle's background story is all about gender and race and growing up and overcoming all this racism and people holding her back. Right. Very similar to Barack. He made up a total phony story about his background to get power and get people to sympathize with him. Michelle chronically manipulates voters. I'll give you another example. Uh, Michelle grew up in Chicago, was a big fashionista from age 18. She would go to the Miracle Mile and get all these fashionable clothes from these designers like Ikram Goldman and Maria Pinto. Everywhere she went, people commented about how great she was dressed to kill. In 2005, three years before Obama ran for president, Michelle was on the Vanity Fair Top 25 International Best Dress List, always dressed to kill. When Barack ran for president, she couldn't show up in the campaign trail dressed to kill and say, hey, I'm a Harvard lawyer just like my husband. She showed up looking like a homeless person. She wore 
an old T-shirt or an old sweater and tried to look like a 1950s black housewife um, and didn't comb her hair. And she would show up acting out these uh, stories. When she went before black audiences, she would put on a phony urban accent. Uh, I've got it all in the film version. So she's chronically trying to manipulate voters, especially minorities, into saying, hey, I'm one of these ordinary black folks. In reality, Michelle has no experiences with black people. She has no black friends growing up. She has no black friends as an adult, except for a few light-skinned ones she maybe met in the White House and who are celebrities. Um, and that, that's, that's her phoniness. Uh, she really is a, uh, a very privileged kid from a political family. Her father was a precinct captain. Uh, and she's always been political. Well, I, I think a lot of this that, that really are hate the, the drift of this country and, and the woke culture in general. Michelle Obama would probably be the ultimate nightmare in terms of that, because you have a black woman and you have somebody who, you know, the, all the rumors out there about her being transgender as well will play into, you know, transphobia along with racism and sexism. I mean, this this would be a nightmare for those of us that want sanity returned to this country because her I can't I can't imagine the country get any woker. But a president, Michelle Obama, would probably make it about as woke as possible. Well, look, Michelle Obama really has never had any original ideas or original thoughts. Whatever the Democrat Party is saying, uh, the progressive Democrats, especially, she'll just repeat it. If you look at her Twitter account, whatever is happening in any given week, she you know, talks about it. When she introduced Joe Biden at the Democrat convention, she said, you know, the BLM protests were mostly peaceful, you know. So whatever, whatever she, the Democrats are saying, she'll say. Um, she doesn't have a core ideological um, background like Barack Obama did from his radicalization in Hawaii by Frank Marshall Davis. Michelle just wants to fit in. That's her thing. She wants to be accepted. And I yeah. think if she was president, she would do everything she could to be accepted by the media, by the global elites, uh, you know, uh, Bill Gates and President Xi. She would just kind of go along because she wants people to accept her. And that's her that's where she's coming from psychologically. Well, she 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 won't have to fight too hard to get accepted by the media. I, don't think. I mean, they've fawned over so much as first lady. And uh, I can't imagine what kind of I, I remember when Barack Obama was uh, elected, I, I got emails from people like in my family females of course just i mean it was like they were having a religious experience going to the inauguration I, i've never heard it was i, I was well, I didn't you know, just, you know. michelle look michelle is the best love democrat she's had 15 years yeah. of all positive publicity hundreds of talk shows hundreds yeah. of magazine covers nothing but all positive now it didn't start out like that i'll, I'll remind you remember back in 2008 michelle was giving these highly political speeches to massive crowds dressed as a homeless person. And she was very nasty and anti-American and no one was really paying attention. And then once she kind of went over the top, when Barack won a primary, she said, well, for the first time in my life, I'm proud of my country. Yeah, yeah. And she said a lot worse things than that, but that's when people started paying attention. So the campaign uh, of Barack told her, they said, listen, Barack could win the white house, except for you. People are, are going to, be appalled by you and not vote for him. So that's when they came up with a new strategy. Michelle said, oh, well, I hate politics and I just want to be the mom in chief. So that worked. The media backed her up on that, even though she was so political. In reality, she's a better speaker than Barack. 
She's a better politician. Yeah. She comes across more authentic. And, but she played that new role of someone that doesn't like politics. And she's been able to work that for 15 years to this incredible popularity. She's probably the most popular person in the country, if not the entire world. Yeah. So if she ran for president, I think everyone would just fall online. Fall in yeah, line. I think so. I, I, she's, and, you know, she is she's very smooth. I mean, just like Barack Obama, uh, it's it's not like she's going to be a bumbling candidate. She's not going to be Biden. And, uh, you know, she if she goes if they, if they nominate Trump again or something, I mean, I, I, I'm sorry, I don't think Trump would have, he would have to resort to insults. But, you know, it's it, I don't know that Michelle Obama has ever been Barack Obama gets some negative press. But other than the rumors about her, uh, what what other negative press has Michelle Obama ever gotten? And they just fawn over her. Well, they have. Now, the way to deal with Michelle Obama, if I was Donald Trump or the Republican candidate, I would open it up and say, Michelle, are you going to apologize for what you did to the black community in Chicago? Michelle, how many millions did you make off the University of Chicago Medical Center to deny health care to black people? These are the questions. Michelle, why did they call you an Oreo? These are the questions that open up Michelle to have to explain what she did in Chicago to black people, how she exploited them. Uh, black voters are no fools. If they found out that Michelle was someone that hurt the black community, they would not be very pleased with her. But is, is, there, a, is there a Republican or is there an opponent that would have the courage to, to say that to her? I, I don't In this climate, I, I don't know that there is. Well, I think certainly Donald Trump doesn't pull any punches. You saw no. him on CNN the other night. <laughs> right. Uh, he's not someone that's going to back down. And I think he'd have no choice but to expose Michelle Obama for who she really is. She's essentially an Oreo. She's black on the outside, but she's really a white girl. She has nothing right. in common with black people. She didn't like being black. She got beat up by black kids. She, no surprise, she had a career exploiting black people. And uh, I think exposing that would be the key to unraveling uh, Michelle Obama's phony persona that she puts on, claiming that she's someone that suffered from discrimination. It just couldn't be further from the truth. Well, yeah, it's not, not something that most of us should be looking forward to. But I, I want to, you know, talk about some of your other films, as, um, if, you, if you don't mind. Sure. The Trayvon Martin uh, one is fascinating uh I, I know people are still interested in that what tell us about how that came about and what you found out and you know just kind of summarize if you can the film yeah the uh i made a movie called the trayvon hoax um unmasking the witness fraud that divided america and that's i made that film because the trayvon martin case uh, the court case against george zimmerman is what really started america on its big decline and the big racial divide black lives matter was founded because uh zimmerman was acquitted uh, Barack Obama got involved because of the election. It was 2012. Everything had gotten worse in the country. The economy was terrible. Everything got even twice as bad in the black community. Illegals were coming in, taking away jobs, driving down wages. So it really was uncertain if the black community would come out and support Obama again, that maybe they're not going to vote this time. So when the Trayvon Martin uh, was killed, Obama picked up on it. Eric Holder, the FBI, they sent Al Sharpton down and they created a you know, big movement against Zimmerman, even though he had been acquitted or rather exonerated by the local police after an investigation that it was self-defense. And they demanded he be arrested in order to inflame the black community to get votes. 
And Obama embraced Black Lives Matter after that, brought him into the White House. And that's how that movement started. And that's where the racial divide really went south, because when Obama was elected, it was about 70-30. 70% of blacks and whites thought that race relations were great. Now, it, when Obama finished his second term, it was opposite. Only 30% thought we had good race relations. So Obama and Michelle, uh, through their lies and manipulation and to get elected, um, damaged race relations in this country, despite the fact that he was elected on the idea that he would make things even, even better. But in the Trayvon hoax, uh, I had done, I had recalled that the whole trial was based on this girlfriend named Rachel Gentel, kind of this hefty Haitian girl yes, yeah. that they said was on the phone with Trayvon during his confrontation with Zimmerman and her claims about what she heard over the phone. And the prosecutors used her statements of what she heard on the phone over the eyewitnesses. There was an eyewitness uh, named Mr. Good that actually saw the confrontation and spoke to Zimmerman and said, get him off of me. He said, oh, I'm going to go call the police. And Zimmerman said, no, I've already called the police. Get him off of me. And the guy went in his house and called the police. And that's when Zimmerman was afraid for his life. He's getting his head beat in the ground and he shot him. Uh, but they used the girl on the phone, her statement, to trump the eyewitness. Uh, and I recall that uh, Benjamin Crump had played some audio excerpts of this girlfriend at a press conference where she said some things that didn't even sound that bad. And then Crump said, we've got all the evidence now. Arrest George Zimmerman. But I remember the sound of the girl at that press conference. She had a different voice than Rachel Gentel, who was two years older and 150 pounds heavier than Trayvon. <laughs> and I did started, I got a hold of the text messages, Trayvon Martin's 3,000 text messages and his cell phone records. And I quickly found that this girl who he called Diamond, Diamond Eugene. And they, they, her name was Diamond Eugene. And they asked Rachel Gentel at the trial, why did you use the name Diamond Eugene? And she said, oh, it's my nickname. It made no sense. Anyway, there were photos of Diamond Eugene sending photos of herself. Trayvon would say, send me a picture of you. And she'd send him a picture. And I'm looking at the picture. I got the phone records. I got the, the images. It's not Rachel Gentel. It's a thin, pretty girl. It's not a 200-pound you know, Rachel Gentel. So I realized that this whole thing was a fraud. That they, and I found out the Martin family, Sabrina Fulton, Crump, they had met with Diamond Eugene, the real girlfriend. And she refused to lie to the police. So they substituted in this other girl to pretend wow. to have been on the phone with Trayvon. And that's the only reason he even got arrested in the first place was because of Rachel Gentel. So the prosecutors were in on it. FBI was in on it. Sabrina Fulton, the mother of Trayvon, they all knew this girl. They, they all met her. And they knew that, that Rachel Gentel was not Trayvon's girlfriend, was never on the phone with him. And they pursued this fraudulent trial. Now, Zimmerman was then exonerated by the jury a second time after the police had, but it led to this political movement that uh, Black Lives Matter that we still suffer from to this day, uh, and that led to the George Floyd thing, you know, hands up, don't shoot. It just went from city to city yeah. and caused so much destruction. Well, and I'm glad you're there to, I mean, that's just, I don't know if that's ever happened before where they just, uh, the the uh, defense team or whatever, the, the prosecution or whatever, just, they were, they were uh, all in on it. Could, yeah, could, conspired to have a a witness impersonate someone else on the stand. That's not, but that's what uh, it goes hand in hand. What we saw, I think MSNBC. That I, 
I so I mean I I don't have a very high opinion of the media obviously, but uh, I don't know if I've ever heard anything worse than what they did when they doctored that tape of Zimmerman's to make it seem like he was saying something racist when he wasn't. And I don't, did they ever even apologize for that? No, they were all in on it to get Obama reelected. They were all in on it, and that's when race relations went south. That's when the media uh, went south. They they would actually take George Zimmerman, who's Hispanic. Uh, Spanish was his first language. His mother's from Peru. He was an Obama supporter. They would take an innocent man and say he's guilty in order to pursue their original goals, uh, their political goals. That's how evil these people are. And I'm sure that uh, the Florida prosecutors and even the Martin family were very happy when Zimmerman was found not guilty because it was less likely that someone like me would come and look at those cell phone records. If he'd been found guilty somebody would have looked at this thing a little more closely for an appeal and said, wait a minute, that's not Rachel Gentile. It's a different girl. So I just, what I did is I got all the yearbooks of the high schools in the Miami area. And there she was. Her first name is Brittany. Her middle name is Diamond, Brittany Diamond Eugene. There she was. And I actually did like a sting. I actually went and met her in person. She's in the movie. You can go to the TrayvonHoax.com and you can uh, link up where to get the DVD. And there's a book version as well on Amazon. Were you able to confront anybody uh, that, uh, I, I guess, the prosecuting attorney or anybody that, that was in, I mean, to me, I don't, I don't know what the penalty for that would be, but if you're, I, I, so it seems to me he should lose his law license if he, if he was involved in it. Well, look, a witness tampering is very serious. Uh, it's a crime. You can go to jail for that. You can lose your law license. Uh, it, it, it turns out there was a six-year statute of limitations on, on uh, bringing complaints to the state bar. So that time would have run out just barely when I came out with this film. I did send a, uh, the book to the Zimmerman's attorneys, and they were, they were pretty shocked and impressed. Mm -hmm. I sent it to the judge. I uh, sent it to uh, you know state bar. Basically, no one wanted to touch it. They're afraid. Everyone's afraid. The Trayvon Martin case is the mother of all racial yeah. race-based cases. So no one wants to talk about it. Now, Zimmerman did sue Rachel Gentile, Diamond Eugene, the Martin family, and the prosecutors about a year later. And, uh, you know, they all got these very expensive attorneys and managed to get it thrown out on some technicalities. But there's no question they were all guilty of witness tampering, lying, uh, you name it. And it was to get Zimmerman for political purposes so they could get Obama reelected. Well, when, when, when Obama made his comment about uh, if I had a son, he'd look like uh, Trayvon Martin, I, he, I, it was amazing to me that he injected himself into a case where, I mean, you talk about inappropriate. I mean, remember when Richard Nixon said Charles Manson was guilty back in the day? And, and he no. called, I mean, I, I can't believe that no civil libertarians no, it, it cared was, about that. It was all about Obama wanted to get reelected. The media wanted him to get reelected. All his supporters wanted him to get reelected. But the core voting group for Democrats, black voters, were not on board to come out for Obama again. He did nothing for black people, nothing. His whole cabinet was all whites. He did nothing for black people. Neither did Michelle Obama. So they invented this uh, race-based story to inflame the black community to try to get them to come out and vote for Obama. And that's how Black Lives Matter started because of that case. Obama embraced them and brought them into the White House and you know, worked with them and organized with them. And he, Obama hired a thousand lawyers into the Justice Department from radical social justice groups making the, the 
Justice Department, a basically a, a radical community organizing group that, that controlled law in this country. Um, so it's a sad, sad story, but it is the story of, of, of manipulation of, of the black community to sucker them into voting for Obama when he really did nothing for them. I, I want to say to people, I, I, apparently we are airing live on Rockfin, I'm hearing, but I can't access the stream, so I can't see comments or questions. So if you're out there, I'm not going to be able to, to answer you or if you have questions for Joel. So please come on over to YouTube because, uh, you know, and just uh, comment here if you have something to comment or question. But uh, sorry about that. Um, the other film that really interests me that you did, I haven't seen it, is the one on uh, Danny Williams. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Danny Williams is uh, a black kid who looks exactly like Bill Clinton, or at least he did when he was younger, uh, who was, alleges Bill Clinton is his father. Uh, people like Roger Stone in recent years have tried to bring him out publicly, but they can't seem to catch anybody that's interested. What, tell a little bit about how the f film came about. Yeah, back in uh, 2016, uh, there was a lot of interest uh, for Danny Williams, who I had met. And, uh, you know, he's spitting image of Bill Clinton. And he told me the story about how Bill Clinton sent his mother $700 a month uh, for a time when he was young and that his mother was a prostitute at that time and uh, was with Bill Clinton on several occasions. And he told me about how his aunt had taken him. His mother went to prison. So his aunt took him to the governor's mansion to try to get some more financial support. And Hillary had slammed the door in their face. And uh, it's a very sad story of someone who was trying to connect with his father for many years, who was in foster homes. Yeah. And um, I wanted to help him tell his story because there was so much focus because of the 2016 election on Hillary Clinton. So I said, well, this would be a reason to help him tell his story. So I made a film with him called Banished, the uh, Danny Williams story. <laughs> and it got, uh, I don't know, 50 million views on Facebook and 20 million on on the, some you know other websites, it was just incredible in the lead up to the 2016 election. So um, that was a very important story to tell, and I think it could have had an effect on the voters because there were certain uh, they really measured it. I think Roger Stone wrote a book where he measured it and said there were certain swing states where the film was widely seen, where the black vote was way down below normal. So I think uh, if voters got the message that. Hillary Clinton was rejecting her own black stepson, uh, they wouldn't be very happy about that. Well, especially you compare, I mean, any of Clinton's shenanigans <laughs> with, I mean, he paid uh, Paula Jones like eight times the amount that uh, Trump uh, paid Stormy Daniels. And now you had this E. Jean Carroll trial, which is, I mean, I, I can't imagine a less credible rape victim than her. I mean, I, you can't even say what year it happened. But compare that to something like here's this this black kid with obvious Bill Clinton features walking around and talking about somebody. First of all, what is somebody at his level dealing with a prostitute for to begin? I mean, it's just but that was kind of his modus operandi, apparently. But I'm just amazed at how how unbelievable the left is at this point that nobody's interested in that. I mean, this is a, well, this it, is just, a it, it shows that there's hypocrisy. Here's a black kid that got rejected yeah. by his stepmother and his father. Uh, but they claim to be a friend of the black community. Uh, Danny Williams' story was corroborated by police officers that came out and said, yes, they, they delivered cash from Bill to, to uh, Danny's mother when he was very young, and they brought him presents from the governor's mansion, uh, Christmas presents, when there were leftover Christmas presents. So Bill tried to have a connection with him when he was very young, and when he became president, they just 
kind of cut it all off. And then they came and grabbed Danny and put him in a foster home. So that kind of silenced the story for some years. Uh, but it's a great movie. You can watch it. It's on, uh, it's on YouTube. And you can really see the plight of this young black kid who was trying to connect with his father and how painful it was to be rejected. I guess so. There's a question for you. It says, I don't know if you know anything about George Floyd. Were there different George Floyd videos that disappeared? Have you looked into that one at all? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I am firmly believe that uh, George Floyd most likely died from a drug overdose. I don't think that Derek Chauvin putting his knee on his shoulder or, the, you know, the, on his back uh, could have killed him. Uh, I think there was a, an initial coroner's report that agreed with that. And then they had to kind of change it. And of course, I think Chauvin got a very unfair trial, being that there was a mob outside the courthouse that would probably kill the jurors if, oh, uh, if they found him not guilty. So they should have had a change of venue. There's many reasons why that, that case was unfair to Derek Chauvin, who simply was doing his job with a police officer. He probably made a mistake and uh, sat on him for too long, but there was no proof that putting a knee on his shoulder asphyxiated or choked him to death. There was no evidence whatsoever. Uh, we kind of touched on this earlier, but Freely Speaking, who is uh, in Australia, I know, so it's good to see you here, Ben. Uh, if white conservatives wrongfully voted for Obama in 2008 in the hope of accelerating racial harmony, what damage to race relations will a Michelle Obama presidency have? Well, well, Michelle has based her life story on racial division and racial slights. She uh, makes up these phony stories of having suffered racial discrimination. Her latest phony story, you can see her on her book tour now. Well, she finished it up, but if you watch the Netflix special, she's been using kind of African-American braids and hairstyles. And <laughs> she, told, she told one of her uh, interviewers, she said, oh, I couldn't wear braids in the White House because white America couldn't handle it. First black family. <laughs> but Michelle never wore braids her entire life. She had a celebrity hairdresser. I interviewed him from age 18. She was just into all this high fashion and hairstyle. She never wore braids ever. So she's trying to uh, depict herself as a, an ordinary black person from the south side of Chicago. She wasn't even from the south side of Chicago. She grew up in South Shore, near where Jesse Jackson also lived in South Shore. Jesse Jackson never said he was from the south side. South Shore is on the lake. It's a very nice middle class area. So, but she's got this phony story of being south side girl and overcoming discrimination, which is total nonsense. So having based her, her whole political life on stories of race, I think you'll get a lot more of that uh, from Michelle as a president. She'll pursue all these racial initiatives. Oh, uh, and don't forget, she, she knows racial politics because she studied African-American studies at Princeton University. Right. Now, at Princeton, after studying it for a couple of years, she re actually rejected it. She left it behind. She realized it would hold her back. She didn't want to be seen as a black person. They were told in the African-American studies, they were told you're only a black person. You're only going to be judged as a black person your whole life. This was the racial makeup of that studies. And she rejected it. She did a, uh, a survey of black alumni. That was her thesis and asked them if they needed to be part of this black community once they finished at Princeton. And they all said, no, we, we just want to go on and have a normal life and not be identified as black and just be normal people and not be stereotyped. And so Michelle was relieved. Uh, she didn't want to live her life as a stereotype. And she went, and as I mentioned, she went back to Chicago. She became best friends with Bernadine Dorn. 
She um, became the number one exploiter of black people working for the mayor of Chicago. They couldn't hire a white person to knock down black people's homes and tell you it'll be good for you. They had to hire a black person. So Michelle played that role. Same thing, University of Chicago. She took away their health care and said, this is going to be good for you. And she made millions of dollars doing it. Uh, but so Michelle has built her political image as a race-based image. So if she became president, I think she would pursue those same uh, race-based policies that you're really you're seeing with this whole equity, critical race theory. Uh, Michelle will just pursue that just like, you know, Biden is doing. Uh, you see a question on the screen there from Doug Waters. Does uh, Joel think there's anything to the story of Loretta Fuddy being inspired? I think that's the woman that died in the plane crash after the birth certificate, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I actually met her in Hawaii when I was there once. Oh. I think she died accidentally in a plane crash. I don't think there was any reason for her to uh, to have met her demise. She did a good job, you know, covering up and preventing, uh, you know, any inquiries about Obama's uh birth certificate from coming to light. So there was, there was no reason for someone to try to hurt her. Uh, Australia again asks, uh, Ben, is it fair to say that Michelle Obama is a weaponized grifter of the highest order? Does she sit atop the victim head totem pole? I, I, would, I would say so. <laughs> That's kind of a funky question. I mean, look, she did, uh, you know, she got into, you know, her magnet school because she was black. They needed a few black people. She got into Princeton on affirmative action. She got a job at the mayor's office because they were being sued because they didn't have any black people on staff. She got a job at the University of Chicago Medical Center really because Obama became US Senator and they paid her 300,000 a year, a new job to help get rid of black people out of their emergency room. So Michelle always had jobs created for her. She really had a very easy time in life. And I think that's what's driving her politically to want to run for president. She feels she has to prove herself all the time because everything was kind of given to her. So she has to make up these stories that she was held back because of her race. It was sure. actually the opposite. She was given all these opportunities because of her race. The doors open for her because of her race. But I think she wants to prove that she belongs. And uh, I think seeking the presidency is the ultimate goal. After all these hundreds of talk shows and Netflix shows and TV shows, she's insatiable in terms of needing publicity and affirmation and the presidency is the ultimate affirmation for Michelle Obama. Before I, before I, you know, we're, we still have a little time, but we're running out. I, I, uh, I want to, I, I just had a book published. I wrote with Bob Wilson uh, from strawberry fields to Abbey road, a Billy Shear story. And we touched on the Paul is dead. We had interviewed a lot of celebrities about it and everything. I know you did something about I and I was it a spoof? What what did you do about the Paul is yeah, dead? Yeah, I made a film called Paul McCartney Really Is Dead. And okay. uh it it is it is a mockumentary, or I guess you call it yeah, a comedy. Right, right. About yeah. If you see it, you think it's it's real. It's great. Uh and it did very well. You can still get the DVD on, on Amazon. And uh, of course the Beatles uh stopped touring in 1966. And so that led to a lot of rumors. Why, why aren't they touring? So uh, they actually, the Beatles actually put in hidden messages in their albums because they were bored. And if you played them backwards, people found out you'd hear things like Paul is dead, miss him, miss him. So the, the Beatles really did put in those clues, uh, but it was just kind of British dark humor. Paul McCartney, you know, of course, is still still very much alive. Well, yeah, I mean, almost pretty much everybody, <laughs> like it was, all the celebrities, anyhow, obviously believe that. But 
But I mean, it, it, clearly though, the clues were real. I mean, don't you think the Beatles had to know what they were doing? Those clues oh, were real. Yeah. yeah. No, if you, you know, I, I spent a couple of years in England and I can tell you there's a certain British a dry humor and dark humor that maybe Americans don't understand. So the, the Beatles were kind of bored and threw in those messages. And then when people picked up on it and heard about it, the Beatles added more of these messages to kind of play the game uh, that Paul was dead. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it turned out to be this huge urban legend that went on for several years. Now, what did you what did you have to say about Bob Dylan? I haven't seen that one either. That's my boy. I love Dylan. Uh, what what was your uh, movie about about him? Well, I've, I've actually made uh, four documentaries on Bob Dylan, oh, covering okay. his uh, 1966 world tour with Mickey Jones, his drummer, uh, when he went from electric uh, acoustic to electric. Yeah, I, I covered uh, Bob Dylan's 1974 world tour, uh, also the Rolling Thunder review years and tour and also Bob Dylan's Jesus years when he played the gospel music and kind of converted from Judaism to evangelical Christianity. So uh, Dylan has lived many different lives and uh, each of those periods of his life are very, very fascinating, particularly when he uh, adopted uh, evangelical Christianity. It, it was as radical as going acoustic to electric. He became this uh, evangelical Christian and actually made three incredible albums of Christian music that uh, still to this day are some of the best gospel music you'll ever hear. Yeah, it, it's a, but did you ever get to talk to him? Would you were able to meet him? Uh, I never interviewed Dylan personally. I interviewed his band members. Uh, I actually have, still to this day have a band. I do a Bob Dylan tribute band. I'm the Bob Dylan character. And we mm -hmm. played for years all around Los Angeles and toured in Ireland and England and Canada. And so some of his band members were in my band. So I used to used to be a joke to the audience. I would say, Bob Dylan's band has the original Bob Dylan, but I have the original band. <laughs> I had uh, John Jackson, his guitar player, Scarlett Rivera, the violinist, Winston Watson, Rob Stoner. So I had the you know fantastic band of Bob Dylan's players, and uh, they were all interviewed, and some of the background singers from the gospel tour. Uh, so very in-depth, in interviewed everyone around Dylan, uh, but not Dylan himself, who doesn't really like to do interviews. Yeah, I've corresponded some with A.J. Weberman, who is uh, who's a, the first garbologist. He's in my right. JFK assassination world, but he's obsessed with Dylan. And uh, as you, I'm sure you know, he got in a fight with her. Do you know anything about A.J. Weberman? Yeah, A.J.'s in one of my movies in the gospel years. I actually saw A.J. last week, by the way. Okay. Uh, so yeah, he's a great character and researcher. He is. I, and, I've uh, thought about trying to have him on the air, but I'm kind of scared because he, he he just he is so out there, man. And some of the stuff he says because he, he accuses Dylan of being a Holocaust denier all the time online. Uh, no, no, not too bad. You just got to steer him in the right direction. He's a good okay. interview okay. and a, a real great character. He knew Bob and uh, and had a lot of confrontations with him over the years, and he's a pretty good guy to uh, pick his brain. Well, he co-wrote Coup d'Etat in America, which is, was a very underrated book on the JFK assassination. So there's another book before we run out of time. There's another question. Did uh, Michelle's dad have anything to do with the handling of the 1968 Democratic Convention? Well, her dad was a precinct captain, worked for the Democrat Party machine in Chicago. His job was to make sure the black people came out and voted for the white Democrats, you know, <laughs> kind of what uh, Michelle does today. Yeah. Uh, so uh, he wasn't really involved in the uh 68, he was a he he had a patronage job, meaning he had a job working for the water department that was very easy uh, because he was a precinct captain. And as long as he got out the vote, 
he could keep his job. If you don't get out the vote, you, you know, don't come to work. Uh, so his father was really a uh, Democrat Party machine worker. Michelle talks about going at age four with him, going around trying to get people to get out and vote. So that's where Michelle became so political from an early age. Uh, I think I mentioned she grew up in Jesse Jackson's house. She was best friends with his daughter, Santita. Yeah, that's, I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, when Jackson was running for president in the early 80s, Michelle was at his house half the time, and she saw all the people coming and going. And that's how she became so political that Michelle married a politician, you know. So uh, it's in her blood, and she's really a political animal. And you're going to see her come back onto the scene, I think, in the fall, claiming to not be interested in politics, but I love this nation, and I want to bring us back together again and remember the Obama years, and we didn't have any scandals, and it was just so great. And uh, <laughs> no so this, is, this is, I think, wh where she's going to come from, but there's a very different true story under her radicalism. Again, you can see the film at SalemNow.com, live stream, or get the DVD, SalemNow.com, or the book version of Michelle Obama 2024 on Amazon.com. Well, I foresee, uh, I just, I, I, unless they just, there's a consensus to line up behind her. You have somebody like Kamala Harris, you have uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, obviously, to whatever degree, she still irrationally harbors it. Do you, do you see any potential for there being a 68 kind of convention type of thing? Could it get ugly if, if they don't, because these these are a lot of varying people that they all have kind of yeah. the same goal, but they have big egos. Yeah. Could they could they object? Look, to uh, this? Kamala Harris has no support. The black community doesn't even think she's black. Trust me. She grew <laughs> up in Canada. Her yeah. mother's from India. She's not someone they think is uh, part of their community. Uh, Kamala had so little support she didn't even make it to the first caucus state in Iowa. She had to drop out. So she doesn't have support. Hillary Clinton is an old white lady. She doesn't have any more support. Democrat Party is rejected, especially white people and old white people. They got rid of Andrew Cuomo. They don't have any interest in Biden running again. All of their tendency is toward candidates who are black, uh, transgender, female. And Michelle just ticks all the boxes for them. And she is the best loved Democrat. And I think they'll all just fall in line behind her once she announces for president. You can see my audience huge and says, are you going to ask the big Mike question? I already asked it much earlier. You're late to the show. Where have you been? Oh. We talked about it. So we discuss it. Yeah. He, he doesn't think that these rumors are. No, it's, it's, a lot of it's, you do there. it's funny, but it's not true. She's very much. You can watch my film. You'll see pictures of her in 13 years old at a dance class in 16 years old. She's very clearly female. And it's just a, you know, a joke that kind of got out of hand. Well, what do you what do you make of it? Because I mean, there's there's I don't know how many pictures I've seen. I get, is that Photoshop or whatever where you have they're superimposing Barack Obama pointing to the crotch and it looks like a bowl. Is that it's all, all it's all silliness? The, let's get serious, and you have to understand what a phony Michelle is in terms of her background, in terms of her politics, and the devastating direction she would take the country if she's elected, and that's very serious. And how the Republicans or anybody can stop her. And I think you can stop her by exposing the truth about how she exploited and abused the black community in Chicago. Well, I hope somebody's listening that, that might use that. Uh, there's one more question. Does Joel think Barack is running the country now? Is Barack Obama the power behind the throne of Biden? Uh, I do think he is. I think all of his people went right back to work for Biden. Uh, clearly, Biden doesn't really control or do much. He just kind of says anything and does what he's told. Uh, Samantha Power, Susan Rice, by the way, quit a few days before Biden released his, his three-minute video for 2024 because she's on Team Obama. Uh, 
the, the saddest piece of video you've probably ever seen. You might remember last year, Obama visited the White House and he was swamped by all the staff who were just shaking his hand and smiling and patting him on the back. And poor Joe Biden was wandering around in the background. He was tapping Barack on the shoulder to get his attention and Barack ignored him. It was very sad to see that, but that just showed you how much uh, Barack is the center of attention and the center of politics, I believe, for the Democrat Party. And that's why it makes so much sense that Michelle is just waiting in the wings to slip in there. Absolutely. Well, we're out of time. I, I just give out. I want to give you a chance to give out all your links again or anything else you want to promote. Yeah, please. So, again, you can live stream the movie Michelle Obama 2024. Live stream it. Watch it right now on your tablet or phone or TV. It's uh, SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. They also sell the DVD there. And if you go over to Amazon, the book version, which is even more in-depth, is uh, on Amazon.com, and the DVD is on Amazon as well. So you got to watch the film. You'll really understand Michelle Obama's real-life story and her plan for power. Well, I, get, I appreciate you coming on, Joel. Uh, keep up the great work. I don't know what your next film project is going to be, but uh, we'll keep watching uh, for uh, Michelle Obama to enter the race here. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Take care. Okay, guys, I'm seeing all the uh, people in the chat. Uh, and I'm waiting. We have another guest, and I, uh, the Catholics in the audience will love him. And it was suggested by my friend Mary Ann Manley, who has suggested a couple other people for me, too. And she had a, uh, one of the guests, I think, from the Netherlands we had a couple months ago, was very popular here. She was a Catholic scholar. This guy, Michael Brown, is a Catholic scholar. I'm going to talk about the miracle of Fatima. And things like that that don't get talked about too much, but uh, he's not on the thing. Tony, I, I'm sure you sent the the link to Michael Brown, right? I, he's I don't see him here yet, so hopefully he can figure out how to do it. Um, Swampy McGee is very active here. Uh, he, what's the comment, Swampy, about uh, where is he? You talked about yeah, something about you asked because I like D Bob Dylan or something. Yeah, where was that? Donald Jeffries loves Bob Dylan. I rest my case. Well, I don't know what your case is, but <laughs> I started listening to Dylan uh, when I was very young. And uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I've been a huge fan for a long time. And Swappy says, Donald Jeffries as Bob Dylan means this is a dead end. Well, I'm not. Am I portraying Bob Dylan? <laughs> I don't know about that. It's, uh, he must be able to sing like Dylan. That was, uh, yeah, that's true. You know, people, uh, Dylan is probably one of the easier ones. When I was writing songs, uh, which I did, first thing I wrote really was a lot of songs. I wanted to try to be a songwriter the first thing as a teenager. And uh, my voice was kind of a comedy. Well, it was very much like Tom Petty, who I didn't know yet, uh, ironically, because he hadn't really hit the scene. But uh, I think Tom Petty was influenced by Dylan and Roger McGuinn of the Birds, as I was. So my voice was kind of a combination of that to the extent I could sing, which I'd be okay. And White Wolf, I know, is looking forward to, he's always saying, help us, Lady of Fatima. He's looking uh, forward to Michael Brown. Well, I hope Michael Brown gets here. I don't see an email from him. So you'd think if he was having trouble, he would email me. I don't have any other way to, I can try. I could try doing one of my typical I protest on air things. I do think I have his phone number somewhere. Uh, Doug Waters says, when does the COVID book out? Oh, very soon. I'm waiting for to work with the publisher. We, The uh, forward by Dr. Sherry Tenpenny is in. 
We were waiting on that a while. Uh, I have blurbs from uh, Naomi Wolf and Cindy Sheehan, uh, Susan Olson, you know, my buddy Cindy Brady from the Brady Bunch. So uh, maybe get a few more of those, but uh, it's um, it should be very soon. I think we're just waiting for that. We have to work out the cover and everything because this is a smaller publisher and uh, Skyhorse was interested and then backed off as they've done for a couple other books. But uh, White Wolf says, believe it or not, he doesn't know who Bob Dylan is. I, I Yeah, that is hard to believe. I don't, and I don't know why I can't access Rockfin. So if you're over there, and uh, I know there's you know a lot of familiar faces there that are not here. Um, try to come over here. I don't know why I can't because I typically I always get an email saying your show has gone live on Rockfin. I have one from YouTube, but not Rockfin. So I, I don't know what's happening there. And Royd says uh, the phrase "black and white murder" gets auto censored in regular YouTube comments. Last really is that right? Well, well, you know, I, one thing I want to talk about before my you know hopefully Michael still comes on. Will there be a way to order a signed copy? Well, it's going to be more difficult than it is for my other books because because it's a really small publisher, I'll probably just get a copy or two, I think. Now, I may buy other copies, but um, so I won't have them on hand to uh, to mail out. But, you know, just contact me. We can try to work something out. I, I try to accommodate people however I can, but... Um, Speaking of censorship, I had just written something on uh, Substack about it. About I'm, I'm just really frustrated with my own censorship. I'm frustrated with being shadow banned. Uh, for instance, the Beatles book I talked about, uh, that what I wrote with Bob Wilson, it, it, it just was published. And they, they were almost simultaneously with the COVID book. It was a question of who's, which one is going to come out first. And I'm going to be on Coast to Coast. If you guys want to sit up late, you know, I get on there a couple times a year. Uh, this Saturday night, Sunday morning, uh, 1 to 3 a.m., Sunday morning, technically, my time, Eastern time, um, we'll be talking, but I think we're just going to talk about the Beatles book, uh, which is uh, called From Strawberry Fields to Abbey Road, a Billy Shear story. And we interviewed lots and lots of people, um, you know, some of the celebrities I know, um, a member of Wings, uh, one of the Ramones widows, um, Fred Labour, who was a guy who really pretty much publicized this thing, first of all. Uh, you know, Sally Kirkland, a lot of my celebrity fans, and we just asked them what they thought of it and what um, what their memories of the Beatles were. Obviously, they, most everybody loved the Beatles. Uh, Swampy McGee says, is she, I, I don't know. She, I've never, I don't know if uh, she thinks it's real or not. I have, I'm not really, she's, now Sherry Tenpenny's going to be on I Protest, I think June 2nd. And she still hasn't aired my, um, interview with her which was recorded probably well over a month ago because we wanted to wait until the Beatles uh, the book was out um wow white wolf i don't know man i don't think you're that young are you I, you don't know who the Beatles are either it's incredible and there's uh chris buckins on the scene how many print copies usually sell to your pot well this um uh, the only, I mean, I, I don't even know what the print run was for Bullyocracy. God knows. I'm sure they haven't sold out. Uh, for Hidden History, it has sold out, I think, twice. And I think they probably originally printed, I don't know what the run is, maybe 5,000 copies. But it's sold like 30,000 copies now, which is really great for today. Um, and uh, Crimes and Cover-Ups is my second bestseller, and that's... I don't know. I, I, I'm sure it's more than 10,000. I don't know. I, I haven't looked at it to see, but it's a, hopefully it'll 
it'll get up close to that at some point. And then, of course, you know, Hidden History 3, which won't be called Hidden History 3 because for some reason the publisher doesn't like the numbers, but I think they're going to publish it. Um, hopefully that'll do well. Is 9-11 truth buried in COVID smile? To, okay, I'm not sure what you mean there. Karen says, 10 p.m. Pacific fun. Yeah, this, that's, well, it's, I appreciate that, Karen. I appreciate the support. And um, yeah, to Coast to Coast is always saying, I'm glad I got the one to three because a couple times I've had to do the three to five, my time, three to five a.m. That's a tough one. One to three is not bad because it's almost, uh, it's almost, uh, you know, all my schedule. I usually don't go to bed till you know, close to three anyhow. Uh, Swampy McGee says, why would flat earth be the biggest scam? I don't know. Is it the biggest scam? I don't know. I don't think it's a scam. I, I think there's uh, a lot to it. Saturday night, 10, yeah, it would be, uh, yeah, 10, let's see, 10, it's 1 to 3 a.m. my time. So that would be, yeah, 10 to t midnight, I think, your time. Um, Doug Water said, did Naomi White write anything for you? Naomi Wolf write? Um, no, Naomi just gave me a blurb. I asked uh, Sherry Tenpenny to write the forward because, you know, Naomi is really busy and she was kind enough to write the forward to Survival of the Riches. So, uh, you know, I kind of, uh, I don't know that she wants to be tied that closely to me to write two different forwards, but uh, she's very nice. And I talked to her on the phone last week, and uh, but she's really hard to get a hold of. You, uh, you know, she's just very, very busy. And uh, so she's in demand. I'm, I'm fortunate that she uh, even pays any attention to me. So I think he says, I don't like Dod Bob Dylan, but I like Donald Trump. Well, okay, that's, you're a good man then. You like me, that's pretty cool. And Doug Water says he's really looking forward to reading it. Well, I'll be promoting a lot of it. But again, what I my point was about my, my last um, my last book. Uh, I mean, my 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 point about uh, trying to uh, my last Substack column, which was about censorship and trying to break Google and YouTube, especially these algorithms. And we talked a little bit about it here. Somebody was saying you can't say uh, black on white crime and YouTube. I mean, those are the kind of things we have to shatter. And the only way you can do it is trying to, because I'm very careful what I say, not because I want to be, but that's why if we if we talk about COVID on here uh, to any extent, we pretty much have to take this down uh, because otherwise I, I'll lose the YouTube stream and the YouTube stream has become pretty good now with lots of you coming over here. And it's, it's nice to be able to put the comments on the screen. And I had to squint to try to read the Rockfin and I can't even access the Rockfin screen to, uh, stream today. But maybe when we get more popular over on Rumble, uh, I think it's on over there. I didn't ask Tony, but um, we'll have more uh, to say about that. And I don't know why. Uh, let me see. Bear with me for a second, folks. Again, remember I have, I'm doing this myself. So I'm going to look here and see if, uh, if I can find, I think Michael Brown left me his phone number. So my only hope, <laughs> only choice I can do here is call him. So I'm going to call up. So to those of you who've been listening to me a long time, you know, this is it. This is what happens. You know, we get glitches. So I'm going to call him because I really want him on the show. I think he'll be very interesting. So I'm going to see what's going on. Okay, so we will. The magic of live radio. Here you go. See if he answered.
Hi, Michael. Yes. Hey, this uh, this yeah, is. I'm just looking for. I never got an email from Wise Wolf. Oh, you should have. Okay, um, Tony, if you're listening out there, he Michael Brown said he never got the email. There he is. I I did send it to everybody, Don. Uh, but I'll go back and you might want to check his spam folder because there's a you link. Check your spam folder. He said he sent yeah, it, but he. I, he said he did. If he, if, yeah, he's going to send it again. It's, it's a Michael Brown address. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay, so Hank, you should, if you check now, he should be, he'll send it in a minute and you should have it there. Okay. Okay. All right. I'll, and you want me, to, okay, I'll just do what it says. Yeah, just, just click on it. It works just like Zoom. You click on the link, come into the studio, and then, you know, I'll bring you into the stream. Okay, thanks. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, so hopefully that'll work. And you know, again, we we run into this a lot. I don't know why. Uh, it's uh, just it is what uh, those of you who listen to me back at, on TFR uh, know that uh, things were even better. That I remember one memorable thing with uh, um, oh, I missed something. Um, one memorable uh, show with John McAfee, where uh, we had these, and he was really cool you know, before they killed him, <laughs> and. Um, he he liked me a lot. In fact, he, he the, his wife asked me to be on the second time, but he was very cool that even though we had these technical glitches, which is one of the reasons we left TFR, but they were a little different than this. It wasn't because of the guest; it was the you know the stream that was messing up. Uh, White Wolf says he's currently reading the book on Hollywood and said on Bard fame. Really incredible how so many actors and musicians were really shafted by their agents. Well, I, I'm glad to hear it. I wish more people would read that, and uh, I may try to get in a few references to that on Coast to Coast, considering. Uh, it's eight to ten million listeners, and I, I, you know, I want to try to throw some other stuff in there as well. Let's see here. Uh... <laughs> Swampy, I can't post after your comments, dude. Uh, Felix says, "Who, who's your, who's your next guest?" Well, it's it's Michael Brown, and he's a Catholic scholar, and uh, we'll see if he can make it over here. Um, I'm not sure why he's not getting the email. A email was sent again, Don. I don't know if it's just a server error or whatever, but uh, and I and I sent the other emails as well to the other possible. Yeah, guests. Uh, well, that was that was all for Joel, but uh, Michael was just the one. I'm going to make sure. Uh, God, I hope I sent because sometimes I've screwed up the emails. I know with my eyesight, with not not using my glasses. Um, I, I think we're good. It. Yeah, it should be. Yeah, I don't. I don't know why he because he. There's no way to bring him in on the phone, right? No, I don't think you'll need to. Uh, I'm just check. I, I made sure that the the link was set in there right. I took out my website, made sure that wouldn't flag. So you're not getting you're not getting an error bounce back, right? No, I'm not getting a bounce back. Okay, so I must have given it to you right. Let me because uh, basically, the email I gave you is s i s p i r spear daily at aol.com, right? Yeah, got it. Okay. All right. Well, I don't know. Well, hopefully he'll he'll get it. Um, it is what it is. I appreciate it, Tony. Okay. Well, we'll see what we got, folks. So this is uh, again. This is the magic of live radio. Doug Waters talking about Leona Wen, who was involved in the Boston bombing, is attending physician. Yeah, I saw. I've, I've seen something on her. Where she seems to be. Wasn't she one of the parents? Uh, at one of the recent shootings, wasn't she, wasn't she one of the angry parents too or something? Uh, it, it's just, yeah, she's, 
don't know if we've established that's the exact person, but I, I tell you what, you know, I wanted to talk just briefly about before Michael hopefully comes on, but um, very upset to learn today that uh, Elon, I mean, again, I, and I just like Tucker Carlson, Elon, I'm no under even less, way less of a, <laughs> of an impression that Elon, Musk, oh, there he is. I think he's here. Okay. It says device not connected though. Oh man. Oh, Michael, I see you there, but it says device is not connected. All right. Well, we're waiting for him to connect. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw, but Elon Musk named as the new CEO of Twitter, this woman, Linda Yaccarino or something, who is the chair of the World Economic Forum. Forum. Now, keep in mind that Elon has tweeted about how concerned he is and badmouthed the World Economic Forum. Then he names the chair of the World Economic Forum as the new CEO of Twitter. I, do I have confidence my shadow ban there is going to be lifted now? I mean, I, I, <laughs> I didn't have I any confidence for it. Did you see that, Tony? I saw it, and uh, I, I thought we'd talk about it on America Unplugged tomorrow for sure. Oh, we, we definitely I see it's I see him there, but it says devices. I know. Connected. I've never seen that. He's just going to have to allow his devices to be picked up by the by Streamyard. You might want to text him. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if that is that a tech. Hopefully, is that a cell phone? Let me see. I don't even know if that's a cell phone or not. Let's try. Sorry, guys. I'm trying to, you know, trying to multitask here. Okay. Let's see if it will let me uh, message. We see you in the stream. <laughs> you mean email him too, Don? Yeah, could you? Just, just let him know. I'd, I'll let you get back to your show. Okay, I'll, thanks. I'll email him. Okay. Okay, thanks. So, um, I'm not sure what's that. But so, you know, needless to say, that's very... That's very disillusioning. Okay. I thought it was a landline, damn it. <laughs> I figured, okay, well, whatever. Hopefully Tony gets through the email to him. But um, Sam Bodistree said, I should have hundreds in here. I don't get it. You know, I, I'm wondering if they do hold down because, I mean, Chris Graves, and I've talked about this before, I, he claims I'm the most censored person he's ever seen. I, You know, I don't get it because they, I had on Twitter, and this was before the world, the chair of the World Economic Forum took over. Um, I had one guy tell me this week, I've had to, I've had to follow you on Twitter eight, at least eight different times. They constantly take followers away from me. On Facebook, I announced again, when in the past, when I announced any of my other books, uh, I would get a good response. You know, so even people may not end up buying the book, but they would at least react to that, that it was big news. Very, I think 20 some people maybe out of 5,000. know, very discouraging, especially. And I even tagged a bunch of people. And of course, on Facebook, they don't even, they, that's part of my shadow ban is like a lot of times uh, I have to really ha try hard to tag people who I want to tag because they know who is more likely to respond to my posts. So what they'll do is they'll bring up a bunch of people that I never interact with and make it really hard to find somebody that I interact with all the time. So they do a lot, a lot of tricks and um, hold things up, but it's, um, I don't know. So far on Substack, they haven't, but that's why I wrote it there. But I, I'm basically relegated now to having to 
promote on Substack and here to whatever extent audience, but as, as uh, Sam's body streets pointed out, they maybe, I, I don't know, you know, maybe they could, uh, it should be working. There, there he is, Michael Brown. Can you hear me? I can hear you, and I, I, I'm glad we got you on here. Well, better. I had, I, I had to use a, a special microphone. Okay. okay well, I, it's a, it's a little feedback, but we, we want you on here. So I, you come right. highly, highly recommended. As a uh, Dr. Michael Brown is a, um, a Catholic scholar, and uh, he, he knows. I mean, I'm always been fascinated by the miracle of Fatima. And similar things like that. So I want to talk to you about that. I have a lot of a Catholic audience who's been looking forward to you coming on here. So um, tell us a little bit about you know what it is you do. You're a Catholic, so do you do you spend time studying just miracles, or are you just kind of an expert in Catholic theology? Well, I've been yeah, I've been. You know, let me just try another microphone here. Yeah, um, it's feedback. It's not terrible, but it's is feedback. Yeah. Let me try this one. Can that's you... better. Okay. Much better. Yeah, uh, that's better. Yes, yes. All right. I just shifted microphones. Um, okay. I've been I've been looking into supernatural phenomena really since I was a kid, um, but uh, especially in the last thirty years, we have this website spiritdaily.com, in which really it's been full time since uh, since we started the website, and before that, I I wrote books, and uh, pre my first book, which was in nineteen. 19- uh, 76 was on psychic phenomena. And then I became, I, I was off on other things. I was a news reporter and I wrote, um, I wrote on other topics, the mafia, toxic chemical waste, all this different stuff. And then in the early 1990s, I start writing books on mystical phenomena from a Catholic standpoint. Um, uh, uh, various mystics, visionaries, alleged apparitions, prophecies, and, and so forth. So uh, I guess that's it in a, in a nutshell. And I've been, yeah, I, I mean, I've been all around the world investigating this type of uh, phenomena. Well, that's great. So uh, let's talk, because I know people, and White Wolf is very excited, as you can see there, he's an expert on Fatima. I, I know a little bit about it. So let's talk, because I, I, a lot of times, I think people, even if they're not, because so many people, as you know, don't have any faith anymore, but it's hard to for them to, you know, I, I'll talk to people that aren't religious at all, and they say, well, yeah, it seems like something was going on there. So tell a little bit about Fatima, how it came to be. Some people seen that, like the 1954 movie, I think with Ricardo Montalban or something, with, with the three children. It was a, obviously based on a real story. So how it's, but it's, it really is a, a, a miracle, miracle of a story. Well, 1917, you, you had these three kids. Uh, Gosh, seven, uh, uh, ten, and thirteen years old. I think uh, they were they were little shepherds. They they weren't educated in the hinterlands of uh, of uh, Portugal. Uh, you know, uh, about oh, about ninety minute drive from Lisbon, north. And uh, and first, an angel had appeared to them the previous year, saying that the Virgin Mary was going to be coming. And uh, the next year, nineteen seventeen, she did. And she appeared starting May 13th, which is tomorrow, um, in 1917, once a month for the next six months. There was one month that was actually skipped in between. But uh, And then in October, her final appearance at Fatima, she would appear there on what looked like a cloud. And uh, 
you know, she comes with a surreal beauty and this grace. And and uh, her concluding apparition was on October 13th, 1917, in which thousands of people, an estimated 70,000 people, saw the miracle of the sun, where the sun looked like it was coming down towards Earth and going back and coming down and moving around in the sky and sending forth around it all these splendiferous colors. This was witnessed even by atheists who yeah. attested to it. Anyway, in July of that year, you can, if you want, we can discuss it. But in July of that year, she had given uh, secrets. Yes, the three secrets, yeah. To, the, to these kids. And uh, those secrets are what people have found through the years to be the most intriguing aspect. Well, the, the, the first, let's talk about those. The first two, I think, are known, but you can say what they are. But the third secret has been the subject of much speculation, obviously. Talk, talk about the three secrets. Well, you know, the first two involved, uh, she said that soon Russia was going to rise with its atheism and spread its errors around the world. Um, she predicted that. Soon after that apparition, uh, Lenin rose to power the next month. And, uh, and, and of course, communism came into being. Um, she announced that uh, some, some things that had to do with the Catholic Church, some devotions. And she also said at that time that, uh, that there was going to, if people didn't reform, the current war, which was World War I in 1917, uh, would end, but there would be a greater war in the future, and it would be announced by a, a, a great sign. And, well, in 1938, by then only, only one of the seers was alive. Interestingly enough, two of the other seers, the, younger, the two youngest yes. ones, died in a plague, in a pandemic, 1918, mm -hmm. 1920 pandemic. Um, but anyway, in 1938, there was this incredible display of the Northern Lights. It was seen from Northern Europe to Morocco, across the Atlantic, uh, into the Midwest, Canada, down to the Southern States, and very unusual. Uh, pilots flying over the Atlantic said it looked like curtains of fire. Long story short, um, soon after that, Hitler entered Austria. He annexed it, and it was, for all practical purposes, the beginning of that Second Great War. Absolutely. So what what, what do you think? I mean, some people even think the third secret has been fulfilled. I mean, is it, didn't that have something to do with Mother Russia returning to the church? And that appears to be what's happening now. Or what, what, what do you think is in that well, third secret? I, for, uh, first of all, the church attendance in Russia is far lower than the U.S., you know, people people have this. There's a myth out there. Um, if you take a look, uh, regular church attendance is well under 10 percent in Russia. And uh, and secondly, in 1944, it, just to explain this to your audience, the third secret of Fatima, when it was released by the Vatican in the year 2000, May 13th, and then uh, actually read and, and the text displayed uh, the following month had to do with an image of an angel ready to torch the world, except that this light coming from the Virgin Mary kind of swamped it out. It stopped it. It, uh, it, 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 for, it was forestalling a chastisement. But 
1944, Sister Lucy, she had become a nun at this point, the only surviving visionary, mm -hmm. had what she called an enlightenment in which she was told what that spear meant when the angel was ready to torch the world. And she was told it meant the unlatching of the axis of the earth. And, and, and she also said that there would be great disturbances, geophysical dis disturbances, didn't use that word, but like uh, quakes, mountains would crumble, um, there, there would be rising seas and rivers, that the clouds would emerge from their limits. So um, I don't think we've seen that yet. Um, and, and so I would have to, I'd have to say, no, it hasn't played out yet. And it doesn't have to do only with war, although war can certainly be a part of it. And war was mentioned in the 1944 elucidation. So there's no, there's no uh, predictive date for that or whatever? No, there, no, there, there usually aren't from these apparitions because time flows differently in the eternal. There is no time, really. And it really hinges on our response to the prophecies. These prophecies are almost always conditional. If mankind doesn't do this or if mankind does this, this won't happen and so forth. You, you see that, uh, oh, time and again around the world. A lot of folks uh, who are Catholic, let alone those who are not Catholic, don't realize how many hundreds of times that Mary has appeared in the last 2,000 years. I wrote a whole book of history of it, and it's quite remarkable. And plenty of the prophecies throughout history have come to be. And don't, don't we have... Uh... <clears throat> Pretty strong anecdotal evidence about the powers, the healing powers of Lord, at Lourdes. The powers of what? Uh, the healing powers at Lourdes. Where, well, where Bernadette? Oh, of Lourdes. Uh huh. Yeah, Lourdes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, absolutely. I mean, thousands of people have been uh, have been uh, cured there. I've been there two, three times myself. It's an amazing place. You go there, you know, people can question things from afar, but you go to these places like Lourdes, like Fatima. I've been there a few times, too. And, and now Medjugorje is the big one around the world and other places as well. When you go there and feel what's going on, you really don't, you're really not left with much doubt. I mean, there's times as a journalist when I didn't believe an apparition that I went to investigate and just was blown away by it. There's this feel, overwhelming feeling of peace. And there's just this, you feel caught up uh, somewhere between here and the hereafter. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, at Lourdes, there were a lot of healings. And then there have been healings at, uh, at many other places of apparition also through the years and through recent years. And you, you have uh, the stigmata phenomenon now, which uh, is acknowledged now to be a real thing. I mean, I, I don't... At the very least, it's, I mean, is it, I mean, is this, there does seem, obviously, that's why I talk when people that don't have faith, there are things like this that really, uh, you know, I think uh, defy all credulity. Otherwise, and the other thing I wanted to talk to you about, um, and I'll, I'll let you talk about what you want to talk about too, but uh, one thing that fascinates me uh, that I think, again, when you talk to non-believers especially, is all the evidence we have of the incorruptibility of certain human beings, uh, mostly saints, or they, maybe they were sainted afterwards, but 
going back, I don't know how many centuries, but uh, what what do you know about the 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 incorruptible bodies or whatever you call them? Well, you mentioned lords, the the yeah. seer lords in France. Bernadette, yeah. Her, her body is incorruptible. Oh, and, is it okay? And uh, dozens of church confirmed uh, cases of it, but uh, you know there are sometimes controversies whether around whether it's incorruptibility or other phenomena, including healing, including stigmata. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to remember, and, and we're always cognizant of the fact that you can have, uh, besides just outright somebody exaggerating, or usually I, I've, I have seen very few cases of a hoax, but people tend to exaggerate things. And what you do find you have to watch out for is spiritual deception where the wrong spirit is playing games, pretending to be uh, a, a saint or the Virgin Mary or wherever. And so it gets pretty dicey. That's why the Vatican is extraordinarily cautious with these cases. I mean, very strict. The secular media will, will accept a lot of these miracles before the Vatican does or before a local diocese will. What What is your view of... Uh... Because, you know, so many people have, there's so many, and in my world of conspiracies, um, there's a lot of conspiracy uh, theories surrounding the Vatican. And certainly go back to, I don't know what you think of the uh, the death of Pope John Paul I, but I think it was pretty suspicious. Uh, and and uh, the really the, the resignation uh, of the Pope that was un unprecedented. And, and what do you think of the, the Pope we have now who seems to be... Uh, kind of a social justice warrior. How do you, what do you, what do you think of today's Catholic church? Well, I don't think there's any conspiracy operating right now. I, 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 I'm with you on John Paul the first and his, and uh, his death. Uh, there are suspicious elements of that, you know, mm -hmm. and, uh, possibly a Masonic uh, uh, undercurrent. The, the, yeah. the current Pope, he's more liberal than the, than his predecessor. Um, but I've, so far, he hasn't actually done anything action-wise to change any dogma or any tenet of Catholicism, which is a pretty strict conservative um, faith. And he himself, I mean, he's very strongly against abortion. Uh, he mentions the devil more than any pope in my lifetime, since I've been uh, uh, reading newspapers at any, at any rate. And so he goes back and forth. He's got real conservative elements and he's got liberal elements. He does his mission, he feels, has been love. And, you know, uh, sometimes the the, the uh, tolerance thing can go a bit far. But I don't believe that he was put in place by Masons or any nefarious group in, in, in Luxembourg or some other hidden place like Bohemian Grove or whatever. Even though I do think that that sometimes there are conspiracies, right? Well, White Wolf, uh, who knows a lot about the subject, says little Jacinta Fatima was incorrupt when she was exhumed ten years after her burial. Did, I did not know that. Uh, partial uh, incorruptibility in that case. Yeah, that was uh, a partial one. Well, how, how does how does science? Because again, science is so cocksure of itself. And, uh, you know, they love to be, uh, they're very dogmatic and very religious, but very devout in their views. But uh, they would say all of this is impossible. So, I mean, I can't remember what the oldest incorruptible person is, but I know it goes back you know, hundreds of years at least. But how would they possibly explain how someone who died hundreds of years ago 
has has not decayed and isn't dust by now, let alone bones. Do, do they even do they just ignore it, or they bother to have some kind of ridiculous explanation? You hit it. They ignore it uh, when they can't explain something. They just don't bother with it. I mean, this is they do this time and time again. I mean, God is impossible as far as they're concerned. So, right. uh, all you know, all aspects of every faith uh, are impossible to so many scientists, and that's why. Uh, if there's a conspiracy, it's a supernatural conspiracy, and it's a supernatural conspiracy of atheism among the ranks of the scientific. And they do yes. a lot of good things, and there are and there are a lot of good people who are scientists. But this turning away from God and 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 anything supernatural is a glaring, glaring hole in their perception of reality. Because yeah. uh, if, if you take a look at if you take a look at all of the things. Certainly, I have seen. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about the supernatural and about the fact that we live forever. Right. Exactly. Life. Okay. There's a question here for you, Mike. Uh, White Wolf says, "Does Mike Brown know about the fake Sister Lucia? The Vatican tried it out in 1969." Uh, I don't believe that. I, I think it's, uh, I think it's totally implausible. Okay, I don't know anything about that, but um, yeah, I I don't I it, you know it's a conspiracy theory go, dating back decades, and I don't buy it whatsoever. I I have I have seen uh, interviews with Sister Lucy from the nineteen nineties. Well, she uh, lived to be a hundred or something, didn't she, or from, something like that? Close to it, I think yeah, it was yeah, ninety seven. Yeah, but, uh, I've seen video and audio uh, recordings of her, and. And uh, there's there's absolutely no doubt that uh, there's no doubt that uh, uh, that she was the real thing when when that person who died in, at the age of ninety seven was the seer in nineteen seventeen. Yeah. What so? Uh, but you you brought up a good point, and that's this is what I I stress all the time. Now I believe that uh, there's the greatest maybe the greatest conspiracy is the is the anti god conspiracy. And it's a uh, it's a conspiracy pushing randomness that everything in life is random and our lives are not valuable or meaningless. We're just little specks in an endless universe. And uh, there's no <clears throat> special plan. We weren't created with any special plans. How it just seems like uh, it's so at odds with uh, the, the traditional view of Christianity and, and especially the Catholic view that uh that God created each of us and we have special purpose and, and science is telling us, you know, you're, nah, you're nothing. You're just random. You're so, you know, there's, there's, you're just a tiny speck you can't even see in this universe. How, how do you counter that? Well, first of all, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's much more plausible that, that much more plausible that God and the supernatural exist than by, than by random mutations. You can absolutely all of these, Various animals and the intricacy, even yes. of the most basic of these animals. Yes, I mean, yes. Got animals at the bottom of the ocean that have a lamp on their head. Right. <laughs> that's, that's just happenstance. And yeah. look at the symmetry of beauty in in humans and animals. How do you? Is it just random luck that every feather on a bird fits perfectly in in there? Yeah. Uh, why Why does evolution need that? If you go by that natural selection. Uh, yep. Theory. I wrote a I wrote a book, a uh, secular book called The Search for Eve, and I had to interview all these paleoanthropologists and evolutionary types and so forth, mm -hmm. and they argue like crazy among themselves. You would think that they've got it all set 
the diorama of museums will show you how we went from Neander from up uh, Aesculapithecus to to uh, to Neanderthal to Cro-Magnon and so forth, and they argue at every stage. They don't agree with anything. There are no dioramas. So, right, right. Uh, you know, I remember just a, one other anecdote here. I remember one time I was at the University of Tokyo doing some research. And I happened to see that uh, that somebody was speaking English, and I walked over. It was a guy. I introduced myself. Turned out he was from Berkeley, but he was teaching at, in Tokyo. And uh, we got to talking. He was in the uh, in the geological department, and uh, and he mentioned something about the age of the Earth being four billion years. And I said, "Well, how how can you know that the age of the Earth <laughs> yeah. is four billion years?" And and I said, "I mean, you could have." And he said. We know that. We know that. And I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, how do I know you're, you're, since there's so many mistakes made in, with your dating techniques, uh, look yeah. at just the, the Shraddha Turin. And yeah. this is what he said to me. He, he said to me, if you don't believe the earth is 4 billion years old, get out of my classroom right now. We were sitting. <laughs> so I got up. I Tolerance. Got up. Yeah. That's that's how open-minded they're. Oh, there's, they're so, it's, I mean, and I, I'm glad we're talking about evolution because I, I don't, and more and more people, I would say, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there were very few people that were willing to come out publicly and say evolution is a load of crap. And very few people were willing to do it. Very few people were willing to go against the ridiculous Big Bang Theory. But that's what modern science is based on, the Big Bang Theory, evolution. And, you know, what? how do you scoff at, I hear people all the time that talk about your magic, your giant magic guy in the sky, the old man with the beard, and they scoff at that. But they don't scoff at a giant ball of matter that came from nothing, they say. Nothing created it. And then it just exploded. And like you talked about, I used to show my children when they were little just to, so they could understand the miracle of God, like the box turtles we would find in our backyard and how they have intricate artwork on their shells. Why? Why would evolution require that? That doesn't serve any purpose. That's it's magic. I see. That that's right. look at the eyeball, just the complexity of the eyeball. Look at the yes. heart. Look at all the enzymes in the body that have to work together. Look at all the functions in in the liver. Are you going to tell me that this is random luck? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's that's preposterous. You, you know, you could uh, you could tell me about the tooth fairy sooner than you can tell me that this this could happen by mm -hmm. just the mutations that occur uh randomly and where does that start no one can explain it they just don't want to believe in god they just yeah. don't want to and uh they're just they're more and more they're just making uh, fools of themselves i'm Absolutely. sorry to be so blunt well we have you know houston said dinosaurs are a hoax and we and, and again you, you when you the more and more evidence and uh we have an angry tiger here talking about way too many missing skeletal remains to prove evolution. I've talked about that for a long time. They, they use plaster of Paris and all those things. I, I don't know how many actual fossils they've, I think it's largely, you know, constructed out of imagination. Well, and, and okay. I do believe that a lot of these fossils are true, but I've been to Africa looking at these fossil sites in Israel as well, Mount Carmel, but look, there's a difference between evolution and natural selection. The problem is Darwin was into this evolution by way of natural selection, meaning a natural selection that you have these random occurrences right. that create uh, the organism. Evolution just means unfolding. God unfold and unfolded his creation. He unfolds mm -hmm. a rose uh, when it blossoms. I mean, so what is so surprising about that? I have no problem with evolution.
but it's God-driven evolution and has nothing to do with chance. Well, and and, and Darwin himself uh, pretty much repudiated it at the end of his life. And uh, it's, but it, it's just, there are just so many holes in it. You have the, the missing, like I, I say all the time when people say, okay, if we, if we came from, if we came from the sea originally, you know, what, how did forms come out of the sea and, and how did some stay? And if we came from apes, why are there still apes? I mean, there's so many questions like that, 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 and they can't answer. They just look at you and they'll say, get out of the classroom or whatever. <laughs> and they'll, they'll say like, how did, uh, you know, how did uh, God, how, how immaculate conception, that's ridiculous. Well, if, you, if you're some, saying that there's a force that created all this, you think he couldn't, you know, he couldn't do something like that. That's what amazes me, you know? I, I know atheists who've had near-death experiences, and they come back, they're not atheists anymore. You know, they, they get a glimpse of the hereafter, and it transformed them. One of them became a friend of mine, Dr. Howard Storm, and mm -hmm. uh, he's now a preacher. <laughs> there was mm -hmm. another atheist who was in Russia, and he was a medical doctor, and uh, he had a near-death experience. He was even he was in the morgue before he came to they he was quote dead unquote and he also became a preacher a minister a protestant minister so uh you know we'll all find out the truth one day but you kind of hope that people don't have to find out about it the hard way yeah and there's so much there's so much anecdotal evidence for near-death experiences i mean i i had a guest on my show that was a, a, a non-believer as well and i think it was his involved his daughter dying or something and so but she he communicated with her but but he you know he or some, I can't remember exact details, but he was converted by that into a believer because he had, couldn't deny it anymore. And uh, uh, Angry Tiger says Darwin equals eugenics. And that's that's exactly right. There's so many eugenicists there. And this whole survival of the fittest thing, um, I, you may know this or not, but uh, one of my political figures I admire is William Jennings Bryan. And at the Scopes trial for evolution back in the, uh, the 20s, he was the, and if you've seen the movie Inherit the Wind, where they make a buffoon out of him and, you know, uh, Frederick March plays him as, as this Bible thumping, crazy fundamentalist. And he, he, he based his objection to evolution on exactly this eugenics. He didn't like the idea of survival of the fittest. He thought that would mean that some people would be killed because they weren't fit. And, and they just completely twisted it and made him into that. Uh, so I, I don't know if you know anything about that, but I, th I think that's just interesting how, they can lie about something so blatantly like that. Yeah, well, there's there's a lot of deception. Sometimes it's not even intentional, but <clears throat> they are so strident in their viewpoints, so strident in their atheism and their and their unbelief that uh, they they're extremely closed mind. And science is supposed to have the the most open mind of any discipline. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, it's it it was incredible doing that book. Um, on, on the search for the first modern homo sapien because uh, you just saw these people spinning wheels and not really understanding what they were saying at all and yet making no bones not to play on words about saying it publicly. Well, I had, I don't know if you've heard of Kent, Kent Hovind or not, but I, I had him on my show uh, a couple of years ago or so. He's one of the uh, you know believers in a young earth and he, in fact, he he opened up some kind of uh, amusement park with dinosaurs, but I don't think he believed. I don't know, but at, at any rate, they threw him in jail. He was in jail for years because he was promoting heresy 
like, I don't know what crime they charged him with, but he was in jail for, for saying that the earth was only, I don't know what 5,000, whatever the young earth people say there is. But I mean, that's this absolute tyranny that they can do that. that, that for, first of all, you ought to be able to say, you know, anything like that. I mean, you're speculating, you can roll your eyes at it, but I mean, so you, I, I assume you're a believer, at least in the younger earth and science tells us. Yeah, I, I don't know how old the Earth is, and neither does uh, ne neither do any scientists. Um, you know, I respect people who take the biblical view, the Old Testament view of how old it is. I mean, I'm I read the I read scripture every day uh, myself. I do think that there are certain metaphors, and so I'm not I'm not uh, certain. I look, God is way bigger than anything we can read, anything we know, and. And uh, when when we're on the other side, when we die, we're going to find out uh, how if, if we think the things he has done on Earth are incredible. Wait till we see what he has done throughout the universe. It's uh, and, and, and how intricately everything works together, just like the human body is so intricate. So is this vast universe. What do you because a lot of us I mean, I believe right now that we are in a spiritual battle. I believe that the people we're fighting, uh, when you see things like the transgender movement and things like that, the mutilation of children, um, I, how does anybody possibly think that's not coming from a really dark place? I mean, I, I call it Satanism. I don't know what you call it. Well, you know, the Virgin Mary uh, has been appearing a place in Bosnia, Herzegovina since 1981 called Medjugorje. And we've written a lot about it on on Spirit Daily. And, and when she first came right away, she said, this is the hour of the power of darkness. She said, darkness covers the whole world. She said, Satan has been allowed extra power to test mankind for a certain period of time. Didn't say how long that would last, what year it would end, and so forth. But we're seeing that. I mean, the, the spiritual warfare is incredible. And it's been ratcheted up in just in the last few months, in the last year or two, uh, even more. But especially grinding on and grinding on and grinding people down and really coming after Christians and, and so forth. There's, uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, so these so, new social movements and these new social rights or just the oppression of believing uh, Christians, whether Catholic or Protestant or Jew or whatever, uh, yes, there's a tremendous spiritual battle. And I also see it because I write a lot about the paranormal aspect actual manifestations of the devil. And, uh, you know, I have I, I have some dear friends who are exorcists, official exorcists, been in my home and so forth. Um, there's They see it. Uh, we certainly have seen it here where the devil's extremely active and, you, and that's why you have to take steps. I urge everyone besides praying and reading the Bible to fast as much as as much as they can. What, how does again? How does science? Because exorcism is general. I mean, they had the huge movie in 1973, The Exorcist. Um, how does science? Because again, that that completely contradicts their worldview. I mean, what is happening to this? It sure seems like something demonic is in there. How do they even attempt to explain something like that? Once again, they ignore it. I mean, yeah. it's standard to talk to an exorcist. Very level-headed guy. My. My my uh, the exorcist I know the best had been a psychologist, you know, very learned guy, and he had worked 
he had worked for the military, he worked for the Air Force in intelligence. Um, uh, you know, he he had been uh, privy to classified information and so forth. He's 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 no wacko. He's no dope. But he is he has seen manifestations. He showed me a picture of this one woman uh, who was possessed, and the picture showed her eyes totally turned black, black. Yeah. I, I spoke recently to another exorcist from Tennessee who uh, has seen levitation, and and I once interviewed one of the two priests who was involved in the actual exorcism upon which uh, Blatty uh, uh, fashioned his novel called The Exorcist, and then the movie came from mm -hmm. it. It was actually a young boy, not a girl. And uh, and he told me, he saw levitation also, and he told me all the manifestations. There's no question about it. No question. They don't want to look into it. And if they did, they'd not only start believing, but they'd be a little frightened. Um, I don't think there's any reason for a true believer to be frightened if they're strong in the Lord. But uh, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be frightened if I were some of these atheists. Well, and I think that... I think that's at the heart of why there's so much resistance on the part of millions of people to the idea of God is that they they are scared of being judged and it might interfere with their lifestyle. I mean, we're all we're all sitting, we all are scared of you know being judged. I think no matter how good we are, because we've all done bad things, no matter how good we try to be. But I mean, somebody that's I mean, if you if you're doing something like uh I don't know, mutilating children or, or, you know, if you're part of a pedophile network or something, how, I guess you would be scared of being judged. I guess there's, and how does a lot of this we see if there is spirituality is promoted at all. It's kind of a new agey thing where I'm sure you've seen the movies, the kind of generic movies about angels, but they don't, what are you, what is your thought on that? About what aspect of angels? Well, I mean, they'll, you'll see movies like I know there was one with John Travolta years ago where he played an angel, but he was, you know, kind of a. I didn't watch that. Yeah, it was. It was. Yeah, I can't remember. But it was and like he was Michael, I think. He yeah, Michael. Was, Michael, that's it. Yeah, but he was, you know, he was. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't go to see it. I, I, you know, I'm. Yeah, I didn't go they, to see that. They seem to like, uh, you know, promote this idea that, uh, but it, it's nothing. They're not judgmental. That's the whole new agey movement: is that you won't be judged with then. Then the whole concept of good and bad goes out the window, doesn't it? If you're not going well, to have to answer I mean, for anything. Look, I agree that there's no standard greater than love. That we're all called to love, whether we're arch conservatives or whether we're extreme liberals. We are called to love. It says that strongly. Jesus said that strongly. And that has to be the number one th parameter. But you can go too far with anything. You can go... Uh, you can begin to tolerate any form of evil, and now you're playing into darkness because the devil is a, is a spirit of extremes. He likes to take us to any extreme, to, to the extreme of believing too many things and the extreme of rejecting too many things, to the, to the extreme of, of being uh, too tolerant or the extreme of being intolerant. So it's that balance we've got to look to. And, and I was on that, that word balance was, was emphasized to me by one of the greatest mystics since Padre Pio, this woman from Venezuela, who I knew well, Maria Esperanza. She died 19 years ago, but she she always emphasized how important it was to have a balanced view. And you want to talk about phenomena? She had was seen levitating even by medical doctors. She had the stigmata, uh, and 
And on uh, 16 occasions, witnesses, including doctors, including a guy I knew who had been a CBS broadcaster in Philadelphia, and, and, and the biologist I knew also, another, on 16 occasions, an actual rose came out of her body, broke through the flesh in her body. This is a miracle that is even pretty wild by the standards of Catholic saints. Oh, there's a question from White Wolf, and this is a good question. Uh, ask Michael Brown, does, do you attend the traditional Latin mass? <clears throat> uh, not, not all the time, because first of all, it's not at the parish that's right, closest not- to me. I, I have recently been to uh, a traditional mass. It takes me, you know, I, I go to daily mass, and so I'm not, it, it takes me 20 minutes to get to this uh, place where they have it only on Saturdays. Um, so overall, I, I go to the regular, uh, the, the regular mass, the, the so-called modern mass, and I, I find a lot out of both of them, whether it's traditional or the, or the, the current version. What are, so what are your thoughts in general in Vatican II? Because, you know, there's people like Mel Gibson and a lot of less celebrated people that, uh, <clears throat> in fact, I, I, Mel Gibson's dad, uh, I was on his mailing list for me. Hutton Gibson, was a, he was a real Catholic scholar, and he felt the Catholic Church ended with Vatican II. He didn't recognize it after that. And so he, they, they built a church out in California where they, have, they just do nothing but the Latin Mass. What are your thoughts on that of people who really violently Catholics object to Vatican II? Well, you know, everyone can keep building their own churches and, and have splinters like we've had since, uh, frankly, to be frank about it, since we have uh, the, the split of the East and the West, and then after that with uh, with Luther. And and look at, look at how many different religions there are now and how many denominations within denominations and non-denominations within non-denominations. Anyway, you know, I do think obedience plays in. Scripture says obedience is more important than sacrifice. Uh, I'm obedient to the head of my church. And, uh, and, if, and, if, and, and you know, I, I don't think they should have put restrictions on the Latin, on the traditional Latin mass as was imposed recently by the current pope. But the reason he did that was that in some quarters, I think mainly in, in Europe, it was uh, becoming ideological. They were using it as a base of of politics instead of instead of spirituality, and uh, and 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 they were using it as a base to attack him. So um, I don't know. You know, we're supposed we're supposed to we're supposed to respect authority, even if we don't uh, even though we don't agree with every aspect of it. At least at least religious authority. Um, what are your thoughts on Archbishop Lefebvre? On who? Archbishop Lefevre, Lefevre. Well, I uh, he was he was splinter. He, there was a, a schism, and I so I don't agree with the, his approach. I don't think that I I think that you need to be obedient to the Pope, and you can work within the system. It's a it's a big church. It's got over a billion members. It's got uh, it's got four hundred thousand priests, and there's a lot of room to to talk to folks who are in authority and try to evoke the type of change one would desire without being becoming radical and, and, and frankly, uh, disobedient. Angry Tiger's another uh, uh, devout Catholic out there. He says, who do you, who do you believe is the leader of the church? Do you recognize the Pope? I sure do. Yes. I, I think Pope Francis is the leader of the mother church. 
of the uh, uh, the mother church of Christianity and uh, of the Catholic Church. Now I know that that you know obviously Protestants have their viewpoint, and I respect it. I. I was when I lived in Manhattan. I used to go to non-denominational church as well as a Catholic church, you know, um, and learned a lot about spiritual warfare at that church in in, in the Lower East Side. But uh, I recognize the current pope. I recognized his predecessor and his predecessor, and and so forth. Back to Peter. Okay. Okay. But uh, yeah. So so you do you reach? Because I mean, I know having discussions there, there's still a lot of the anti-catholic prejudice out there especially with born again a lot of born again fundamentalists uh i uh, i i can i can glean that you know from talking to them oh sure know? and uh so uh, do you so but catholics used to always say that you you know they you had to be a catholic so what is your thought on do you have to be a catholic to go to heaven no no you don't john paul ii said that no but you, you have to believe in God, you know. I would you, think so. Yeah, <laughs> you, you have to believe in God, and in my opinion, you have to believe in in, in Jesus Christ. And yes. and if you, I don't care what religion you're in. I don't care how you worship, revere, whatever. If you've got Jesus in your heart as a personal force, then you're getting there. And when you do that. Things come naturally. Love comes naturally. And there wouldn't be anywhere near the, the division in the United States right now if more people looked through the prism of love. Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll give you, we're, we're just about out of time. I'm sorry, you know, you got here late, but we, I think we got to ask you just about everything we wanted to. Uh, you're obviously a wealth of knowledge. Uh, give me the time to give out any links you want to give out or promote anything you want to promote. Well, uh, our website is www.spiritdaily.com. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's on Facebook also. But I, I like to stay with with uh, the spiritdaily.com site if anyone's interested. Well, thank you to Marianne Manley for recommending you. Uh, she uh, always recommends good guests. So good to have you here. I'm a fallen Catholic, but I, I, I love hearing about this. I'm still, I still have faith. Obviously, I have very strong faith. So uh, it's it's we really appreciate what you're doing out there, and uh, I thank you very much for being on the show. We'll have to have you back, and I thank everybody out there for listening to I Protest. We'll see you next week at the same time. Thank you. Thank you.